Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. So the separation of the two is is something that has to be done with intention. Yes. And then also recognizing black history also needs to be done with some intention. Real people lived in these communities. To be erased is a, a powerful motivator. I'm Elaine Chow. In 1926, Carter G. Woodson and the Association for the Study of African American Life and History launched the first Black History Week. Fifty years later, President Gerald Ford made Black History Month a period of national observance. We're now in 2023. What exactly is the Black History being recognized and celebrated by schools, institutions, organizations, and even businesses in the U.S.? And who has done the research, curation, and interpretation of Black history that happens in formal settings and in everyday life, especially at a time when the value and validity of certain kinds of history are being challenged? Joining me in studio to talk about it, we have three guests. Cicely Hunter, public historian for the African American History Initiative at the Missouri Historical Society. Welcome. Thank you. We also have Vivian Gibson, author of the award-winning and truly memorable memoir, The Last Children of Mill Creek. Welcome to you as well. Thank you. And Pam Sanfilippo, Program Manager, Museum Services and Interpretation at the Gateway Arch National Park. Welcome to you, Pam. Good afternoon. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for being here today. Cicely, let's start with the basics. What does it mean to interpret history? Yes, yeah, so I see interpreting history, especially as it pertains to uh, black experiences, um, is one in which we sometimes have to read against the archive. And so by that, I mean that, you know, oftentimes these histories about black people have been told from um, white perspective or perspective that's not necessarily black people. And when when that happens, a lot of times we have to uh, read against that narrative that puts us as a, a subjective people and, and things of that nature mm -hmm. to really craft a story of lived experience that is indicative of black people, that mm -hmm. is a, a course about, you know, things like the black freedom struggle, but also about black joy and black experiences. And I think that's what's most important about um, interpreting history is that we got to be more strategic in our emphasis that looks not just from the, the, the dominant narrative, but looks truly at black life. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at what is present and what is also then absent, not because it wasn't there, but because there wasn't attention being paid to it. Would you exactly. Say that? So Vivian, uh, you know, the historical interpretation process sounds a lot like, you know, collecting pieces of a puzzle mm -hmm. that have been scattered all over the place in an effort to create sort of a, a clear picture of people in a place at a certain time. And an obvious example might be to look at uh, newspaper clippings mm -hmm. and relying on those which present something and not a lot of other things, as you've mentioned, Cicely. And it shows a, a perhaps a skewed side of the story. 
As you were writing your memoir about your childhood home of Mill Creek Valley, which was a, an historically black neighborhood here in St. Louis that was raised in 1959 for, quote, industrial redevelopment. How did you find those pieces of history to complete your book? That's a good question because, uh, as Cecily pointed out, there wasn't always good information, say, in the newspapers or even in the museum archives or libraries. Um, it was simply left out. And uh, even today in newspaper.com to, to get articles, you can't find black newspapers, which is amazes me today. And in pictorials for even at the History Museum, you don't always find pictures of black life, or certainly not black joy. Uh, if you put in Mill Creek, you find houses that have been demolished once things were starting to, to be torn down, but you can't find a neighborhood when, they've, when we've been described as a slum. Mm -hmm. And all the pictures that you see are of that. I um, Fortunately, it was a memoir, and I had some of my family information. But I was 10 years old when um, Mill Creek was demolished, so I had to do a lot of research about what was going on in society at that time, and certainly in Mill Creek. Mm -hmm. And it was not easy. And where did you do that research? I did a lot of it at the History Museum. I did a lot of uh, articles from the Post-Dispatch and the Globe Dem Democrat and the St. Louis Star. So, But I had to read that because it was skewed. Mm -hmm. um, um, so a lot of that. And, and then, of course, the black newspapers, um, just history period about what was going on with urban uh, renewal at the time, uh, politics in the city, uh, in the nation, mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. So... Now, Pam, you are at the Gateway Arch National Park, and that is a, a form of official history, um, and it, it's part of an institution. Um, there is this saying that is attributed to Winston Churchill, that history is written by the victors. Do you find that to be true um, in the kind of history that you have been responsible for helping to to interpret and to present, particularly at the Gateway Arch site? I think historically that would be true as far as the traditional records that people, researchers, looked at. Um, what we've been able to do is kind of delve a little further, and that it's going on across the nation, of course, in museums and uh, history departments throughout the country to to really things that were there before, you know, what consensus records tell us about where people were living, what their incomes were, um, more about them. And so, so using those, using oral histories, which traditionally were not used as official uh, records, and and blending all of those together and then going to the actual people who who lived that history mm -hmm. to tell those stories as well. And um, do you get some of that from those who come to visit the museum? Sometimes, sometimes it's going out and searching for that. We've been very fortunate. You know, we're working on uh, new exhibits for the old courthouse where Dred and Harriet Scott first sued for their freedom. 
along with 300 other freedom suits that uh, were held at the old courthouse. And we're very fortunate that the great-great-granddaughter of Dred and Harriet Scott lives here in St. Louis, uh, Lynn Jackson, and so she's been instrumental in sharing some of her family stories about her great-great-grandparents. So the extent to which people are integral to telling and and remaking sometimes history certainly seems to be something that that is coming out from from the things that you've said both Vivian and Pam Cicely if we put things sort of in another way you know whose versions of black history have had the most purchase in this country so who who have had the most purchase yeah, in this like country? Whose versions of history have been held up as the version, like the authoritative <laughs> versions of black history? Yeah. So I would, I, of course, like to point to black scholars and uh, folks who have lived the experience, uh, because I think that that's truly where the, the real stories come in, and that's what shapes our understanding in a full and complete way. So, um, you know, I, I go back to some books that I read from the 60s. Like, it's kind of crazy where, where I'm thinking about, um, you know, like the civil rights movement with MLK and how, you know, at one point in time, there was even talk about, well, they're just aimless crowds kind of wandering, right? But they weren't. They were very organized and strategic. And this organization stretched back for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years right mm-hmm. and so just thinking about just thinking about that um, and coming to the understanding that there are scholars that have been doing this work and continue to do the work and there are people who have lived the history and can tell the story um, in profound ways and so Vivian in terms of what you have observed since the time you began researching for the the memoir that you've written and what is going on now do you feel like there has been um, that there has been significant change in in who's telling stories and I mean what is happening with the the restoration of the the old courthouse maybe is that an example what do you think well <clears throat> it's been a short time I the book my book came out in 2020 so I can't really point to a significant change in, in that short time but over time certainly I've seen a change and to go back to uh, Cicely's point, uh, black newspapers probably have uh, been the source of black history for certainly black people and anyone else interested. And again, it's hard to find archives of even black newspapers. Um, So I think my experience talking about this book and how much interest there is in what I wrote, I think I see a change. Mm-hmm. For sure, I'm talking to students at even the middle school level and the college level and book clubs and corporations. So there seems to be a heightened interest for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that we did do before this this conversation happening was some engagement. And our producer, Maya Norfleet, she posed a question to our online audience. Who taught you black history? Where did you learn Black history, and when did you first start learning about Black history? So I am not someone who is from St. Louis. Um, I was born and raised in Canada, so I did not get uh, I didn't get much 
even about First Nations history when I was growing up through the 80s. Um, One of the people who did respond to that call for engagement is someone who did grow up in Missouri. Um, This person was a a guest on our program previously, Marie Enger, and they shared that their mom, who is a history teacher, got them started as a child and got a little black history in primary school. Um, And they tweeted, quote, I learned what I know now from the people around me and how to research what I didn't know from activists, uh, activists, that is, both online and in real life. And if not from my friends, colleagues, and community, I'd be stuck with a seventh grade black history education. Mm-hmm. Again, that's coming from Marie Enger on Twitter. Cecily, in hearing that, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, so I, you know, I, when you read that quote, I think, what I immediately went to is that, um, you know, when we talk about American history, U.S. history, I really think it is black history. You know, it, in so many ways, I, I think that people think of them as disjointed, mm-hmm. but they're very much interwoven and interconnected. And that's the power of black experience and black history is that these things are not separated. They're not, you know, we, they're not divorced. Right. But they're integral and they're interconnected, interwoven. All of those things that are complex speak to black experience, black life um, and and alike. So that's just kind of what comes to mind for me. We're going to take a short break here, but we are going to come back very shortly. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. We are returning now to our conversation about Black history and its interpretation with three local historians, Cecily Hunter, Vivian Gibson, and Pam Sanfilippo. So Pam, the museum at the Gateway Arch saw some recent renovations that were unveiled in 2018. And there's been also the renovation of the old courthouse. Now, can you provide a concrete example of a piece of history that is going to be interpreted differently with this old courthouse renovation? Sure. Um, the, the Park Service, part of the reason that the old courthouse is part of Gateway Arch National Park is because of the story of Dred and Harriet Scott. And at that time, it was just Dred Scott who was important in 1935. Um, so we've told that story for many years. Um, but with these new exhibits, we'll have a, a, an entire gallery dedicated to the story of Dred and Harriet Scott, including both of them and their family. But the emphasis is changing in that we're telling it more from their perspective. Previously, the Park Service would tell the story from you know, the court cases as they came and, and the decisions that were made by the judges. Now we're looking at, you know, their lives, how, how they met and got married, and then their experiences, and them making this decision to file the suit. So, so just, you know, enriching that story, as Cicely was saying, looking at the people mm-hmm. themselves. 
And it, before the break, we had talked about the um, the tweet that had come in about school. And I'm imagining that the old courthouse is a place that children come to visit or go to visit with their classes in a very formal way. And then also with their, their families and members of their different communities. Cicely, do you think that this is a sign of progress? Yes, absolutely. And I also think, um, you know, Vivian's amazing book, uh, we also will have an exhibit that focuses on Mill Creek Valley. Uh, Gwen Moore, the curator of urban landscape and community identity is developing that. So just seeing the ways that we're really bringing out stories of experience that, you know, at one point was deemed like, "Eh, it's a throwaway thing, right? It's not Mm -hmm. really as important. You got urban urban renewal and blight and things like that. But now we're seeing like, no, Real people lived in these communities, and they built communities. There were businesses. There were churches. There were schools, right? This was an active community. And so we're beginning to see these stories really come to life in so many different ways. And it's been going on for years. Mm -hmm. And it's coming from different places. Yes, Pam. And what I love about it is then it helps us understand how we got to where we are today, you know, that, mm-hmm. that relevance to me is just crucial for, you know, well, well, gosh, if that community was there, what, you know, what happened to it? Where, where did those people go? Mm-hmm. Where are they living at today? Uh, the, those connections are right. so crucial. And Pam, you know, oftentimes history is seen as these sort of spectacular or, or monumental events. But these the slices of life you know, that you were talking about, Cicely, and that you've also mentioned, Vivian, that is very much what makes community a living thing. Um, what stories about everyday life will be provided to, you know, to offer another interpretation and understanding of history? Sure. Across from this gallery dedicated to Dredd and Harriet Scott, we'll have a gallery called Pathways to Freedom that talks about African-American life in St. Louis from its founding. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, helping people understand that until post-Civil War, really, African-Americans and whites were integrated in the communities. Um, There are many reasons for that, but it wasn't until after that, after Reconstruction, that uh, you start seeing the segregated communities. So again, how did we get here today? Yeah, and that reminds me also, Cicely, of what you were saying about like American history is Black history. So the separation of the two is is something that has to be done with intention. Yes. Mm And then also recognizing black history also needs to be done with some intention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Vivian, you know, St. Louis has a new major league soccer club, mm-hmm. and St. Louis SC has announced plans to build various public art installations and memorials that are dedicated to Mill Creek Valley. And that's along the one mile um, of the Brickline Green, which stretches from Harris Stowe. State University going east um, to the St. Louis SC Stadium. Are plans like this part of what you were hoping for when you wrote your book? Uh, and that is like to have larger institutions finally recognize what happened to Mill Creek Valley and honor its legacy? I can't honestly say that that's what I was hoping for. I was hoping to uh, humanize the people 
in Mill Creek to tell the story of everyday people and what our community was a lot about. But certainly having a monument or monuments that are going to stretch this distance starts a conversation, and I think that's important. Um, displacing, segregating and displacing 20,000 people and putting up a monument 60 years later, that's a little bit of an imbalance. Mm -hmm. But if it starts a conversation, if children who come there ask questions about how did this happen, where are these people, where did they go, how did, how did they end up here, it's a start. Yeah. Well, I could say as a parent, if I were at the uh, St. Louis City SC, right at the stadium, mm -hmm. and my son saw that and asked me those questions, I certainly would not have all the answers. So I'd be looking to, to folks like you to mm -hmm. help me um, get that education. Is there some more work that you would like to see done, Vivian? Absolutely. Um, this is the first conversations I've ever heard about Mill Creek so publicly. I don't, I don't know if it was the timing with COVID, the book coming out and people having time to read and, and discuss and reflect. Um, but uh, we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And certainly young people are going to be the uh, answer to making the change. And they can't make changes if they don't know the history. Mm -hmm. Now, one place people will go for history is the Missouri History Museum. And uh, Cecily, in insofar as what people can find at the Missouri History Museum, um, what would you recommend to someone who visits there and is specifically interested in learning more about the Black experience? Absolutely. So I, so there are three branches that exist within the Missouri Historical Society. The uh, What's called the LRC, the Library and Research Center. Uh, we have the History Museum. And then we also have a Soldier's Memorial. It's a military museum. So I would say by visiting those particular sites, uh, you can learn more about your community and what you lived in. Oftentimes people's houses and where, you know, like the general vicinity of where they live and where they go to school, where they go to church, right? Like that's a powerful example of seeing what was there before and what's there now. Um, and then you know, I would also say programming. Like, we always have programming going on. We have our Thursday nights at the museum. Uh, we are in the in the full swing of Black History Month right now. Uh, we will have programming that will focus on African-American history as it relates to St. Louis at least once a month uh, during our Thursday nights. But we always have things going on. We would love for people to come and tap in and have dialogue and discussion so that we can continue to progress um, as a city mm -hmm. and as a region. I want to ask a more personal question. What is it about history that interests you? So, Pam, why don't we start with you? Sure. I consider myself more of a social cultural historian. I am not a military historian. And, and it is those stories of people. And because there are so many things that connect us um, rather than, than divide us. I had the great pleasure years ago to work with the History Museum on a project they did on Through the Eyes of a Child, and it looked at four historically black communities in St. Louis. And that's when it really opened my eyes. I thought, am I qualified to be doing this as a white <laughs> historian? But through that project, 
it connected me more um, for those shared stories. We recently did a teacher workshop that Vivian participated in and also um, Amanda Clark from the History Museum to share with teachers these stories too so that they can share with their students. So that's that's what I love, sharing those stories and, mm-hmm. and feeling connected. Certainly family history. Uh, to be erased is a, a powerful motivator. And I think that's the case in a lot of African-American history in communities around our country is that the stories have been suppressed and simply not told. And had I not written this book, it could very easily be that Mill Creek would have just been erased because I'm in my 70s and uh, people are in their 80s and 90s. Once we're gone, if nobody's talking about Mill Creek, nobody will know. And I hear that all the time. I didn't know. Where was it? And I'm amazed that it was the heart of downtown, and people are saying to me today they've never heard of it. Mm -hmm. And there was, I think, an anecdote that you had shared with our producer, Maya Norfleet, um, about where a a cousin lived Mm -hmm. and that what is there now is a parking lot, just a surface parking lot, a fence and asphalt. Right. So, I mean, that the juxtaposition of where people lived and what is now no longer there is, mm-hmm. is extremely powerful. Cicely, what is it about history that, that makes you feel more alive or, or attached to, to life now? So for me, it's being able to understand how the past reflects the future. And, you know, historians have talked about how, you know, in order to to understand the present moment, you have to be able to to look back from, from where you came, right? And I think that that's what history allows me to do. It allows me to see what's happening in our present moment, but also thinking in the long term about, well, what does that mean for our young people that are to come, generations to come long and, you know, far beyond when I'm gone? What is it going to look like for our young people in the future? And I think that's, that's what motivates me is being able to see that through line that exists. Do you think that people are a little bit more interested in history now personally? I mean, one of the things that we got um, from that engagement call out um, was from someone named Corey Hinton. And um, he tweeted that learning about black history in particular said, for me, it started with first grade with coloring sheets on Tubman, Truth, Henson, and King. While I might have had teachers delve into it in units outside February, it wasn't until college where I took classes to fulfill a black studies minor. So that is another level of commitment, certainly. There's so much left out of the U.S. history books. Court, thank you for sharing those thoughts. Um, And again, to this point about interest in history, do you think that there is more interest in history maybe now than a few years ago? I think it's easier to research history now. You, you spoke earlier about seventh grade history. When I was in seventh grade, black history was George Washington Carver, period. I didn't study African-American history until college, uh, and we were fighting for that. I was in college in 1967, and we boycotted to get African-American studies courses, so you can all thank me. <laughs> 
Well, and that paved the way to fight for a lot of different Americans' experience yes. and, and history, right? Um, where do you think we are headed? So, Cicely, um, knowing what we know now, what ex- expectations do you have for the way Black history should be interpreted in the future? I think that we're definitely moving in the right direction. That you know, as I spoke about earlier uh, with my first comment, reading against the archive, that's where the work lies. Um, that's and and also the lived experience is also important uh, to consider. So I think we're heading in the right direction. We just got to keep working it. Uh- Sam, I'm sorry, Pam <laughs> San Filippo is program manager in Museum Services and Interpretation at the Gateway Arch um, National Park. Vivian Gibson is the award-winning author of the memoir, The Last Children of Mill Creek. And we also have um, Cecily Hunter, public historian for the African American History Initiative at the Missouri Historical Society. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. If you'd like to share your story on learning history, especially Black history, leave us a voicemail on our dedicated voicemail line at 314-516-6397. That's 314-516-NEWS. And you can also engage with me and the producers of St. Louis on the Air on our new Facebook group. Just search for St. Louis on the Air on Facebook and select the public group that has a collage of our previous guests. This episode was produced by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.